Hello, and welcome to the Jubilee Church Podcast. Jubilee Church exists to help all people know God, find family, discover purpose, and make a difference. If you would like to learn more or connect with us, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. I am pleased to be with you all. Uh, 24 hours ago, I wasn't sure I could make it. I was uh, laid up. I had 101 fever, um, stuff draining. You know, you know how it goes. It's nasty, <laughs> nasty, nasty. Uh, so if you see my wife, um, give her a hug. She nursed me back to health while making sure my children didn't burn down the house or fall out of a window. Um, and so, uh, you know, pe- the, I, 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 I wrote to the elders and the elders prayed and I feel so much better. Isn't the Lord good? All right. Um, here we go. <clears throat> it's, it's taking me a while to warm up. I'm sorry. It's, I, I, I didn't, I mean, I definitely didn't wake up feeling like my normal self today. But that's okay. <clears throat> the Lord is good. On June 4th, yes, that's right. Give the Lord a half, a hand clap. All right. <clears throat> here we go. On June 4th, 1944, it's the height of World War II. The German military machine has all but crippled Britain. Uh, The uh, British Navy is under siege. The Blitzkrieg has destroyed London. Uh, The people of Britain are the last line of defense for Europe. And they're they're tired, they're injured, they're starving. An embargo... Uh, the British Isles has prevented supplies from reaching Britain, and Germany seeks to basically starve them out. But on that fateful day, uh, the U.S. Uh, allies, um, what is it, U.S. Navy Task Group 22, um, identifies a German Unterseeboot, a U-boat, a submarine. They force the submarine to surface, and then they capture the submarine. And it's actually uh, this great exhibit over at, in Chicago at the Museum of Science and Industry. They have the, the submarine and all this information about this event. Um, American sailors uh, boarded the submarine. The Germans abandoned it and tried to sink it. And the Americans rushed in. They gathered as many documents as they could find. Uh, they had to disarm um, explosive charges that had been planted all around the submarine to destroy the submarine so it couldn't be captured. So just imagine, you're 22 years old, you've enlisted six months ago, and you are climbing into a sinking steel tube with explosives in an attempt to save this submarine. Now in the submarine, what did they find? They found top secret documents, they found code-breaking secrets, they found state-of-the-art technology. I mean, come on, German engineering? BMW, anybody ever drive one? Top secret technology that helped the allies to actually turn the tide and win the war. Now you go and you see this exhibit and like, I gotta tell you, all my patriotic like juices were flowing and I was like, wow, isn't America amazing? You know, Um, and of course these young men uh, display this bravery and they receive a medal, right? Medal of honor for, for the work that they did. Um, it's easy to see something like this display, think about these historical events and think like, yes, of course, reward. You know, they deserve this, right? But when Jesus speaks to us of reward in Matthew 10, do you feel the same way? Do you get excited about, yeah, hospitality?
reality, I'm going to go out and receive a prophet. No, you think, and so the question is why? Why why is there this disconnect? Why is it easy to think about rewards for heroic actions in time of war or a great humanitarian um, uh, 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 aid that's given or or even um, acts of um, athletic feats on the field, but not in service of the kingdom? Part of me thought, well, you know, maybe the problem is that I think serving God should be its own reward, right? I mean, getting a reward for serving God, isn't that selfish? Doesn't it undermine the virtue of the deed? And while I think this thought is probably prevalent among us, is it what the scripture teaches? That's the question we should really be asking. So we've come to the end of our series here in Matthew 10, Faith in Action. And today we have before us a direct and unapologetic promise of reward from the Lord of Lords himself. Let's take a closer look at Jesus' words and consider what I might be missing, what you might be missing, when we think about faith in action, kingdom rewards. In the early verses of this chapter, we see Jesus is addressing the 12 disciples before their first big group assignment. Right? Uh, he's sending them out two by two, and he tells them, Actually, I love this. I'm going to read this again. He says, as you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, now freely give. I got excited when I heard Debbie reading it, standing in the back saying, yes, Lord, that's what I want. And the disciples did the same. Jesus gives them his authority. He deputizes them. He, he puts on, he elevates their position, right? Disciple, if you're not aware, basically means learner, right? You're walking around, you're following Jesus, you're learning from him, taking notes. But now they're not just learners. Now they're sent ones. And he commissions them and he sends them out and he gives them authority. He makes them ambassadors or emissaries. So I looked this up, emissary, noun, a person sent on a special mission, usually a diplomatic representative. So another way to think about this is Jesus has transitioned them to apostles, sent ones. They got an upgrade. They've been deputized. After this commissioning, Jesus warns them of the challenges of the mission that lies ahead. The potential of facing unjust punishment in the courts or physical harm in the synagogues imprisonment by corrupt governments, even violence from one's own family. David Harrington so helpfully put this into perspective for us in his message two weeks ago. It is right that we should be asking ourselves questions. Am I a disciple? Am I really learning from Jesus? Have I counted the cost of discipleship? Am I aware and prepared for the risks? But that's all in the past. Today, I get to talk to you about the good news, reward. So yes, there are dangers, but there are also blessings. Maybe one reason we have trouble conceiving of rewards for following Jesus is that, you know, these heroic acts uh, of these naval officers, they just seem like a bigger deal, right? The fate of the known world hangs in the balance. Nazi Germany is going to take over. We must overthrow them. But are we aware Are we cognizant? Do we 
keep in the forefront of our minds that the world is engaged in a great battle. Not a battle for the freedom of Ukraine, not simply conflict in Afghanistan, but a spiritual battle. A great conflict is waging around us. And we may not see it with our, spiritual, with our eyes, but we, may, we might see it with our spiritual eyes. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus that there is a spiritual battle, not a, not a battle against flesh and blood. We're not trying to overthrow a government or defeat an army, but a battle for flesh and blood, a battle for the eternal souls of men and women made in God's image. And Jesus agrees. Otherwise, why would he have given his disciples specifically power and authority to overthrow the evil forces, to cast out demons? If Jesus thought this was just uh, uh, about uh, convincing people of the right philosophy to live, he would not have needed to give his disciples authority to cast out demons. Jesus recognizes that there is a spiritual enemy that, that the world is under the power of an influence of Satan, the prince of this world. That Satan has unjustly usurped God's authority and has imprisoned men and women in spiritual bondage. And just like the allies meant to liberate Europe, Jesus is liberating men and women from spiritual bondage. The kingdom of God is rushing in. The kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is invading. Now, whether you're new to this idea of spiritual warfare or not, I want to go deeper. I want to ask the question, how is it that what Jesus is talking about, welcoming a prophet as a prophet or welcoming a righteous person as a righteous person, how is hospitality useful, beneficial? How is it comparable to wartime bravery? Jesus tells us that it's so, that it is deserving of a reward. And if Jesus' words alone aren't enough to convince you, that's okay. I want to show you today that the receiving and the serving of God's messengers and of God's people has always been and still is today a critical piece of Jesus' spiritual offensive in the world to, tear, to, to overthrow the enemy and to liberate people. Now, in the first century, after Christ's birth, hospitality was assumed. It was a paramount, actually, probably you could say it was a cardinal virtue of the culture. You know, there was no motel, no hotel, no holiday inn. If you traveled to a town, the trip itself was arduous. You probably, if you were lucky, you got to ride on a donkey. It was exhausting. Most people didn't have a donkey. They had to walk. Okay? And it was treacherous. You didn't have highway patrol. You, know, you had to watch out for robbers and bandits. And then once you arrived, there's no guarantee of having a place to stay unless you knew somebody in town. I mean, let's remember, Jesus himself was literally born in a barn. The only thing that would prevent Jesus' disciples from sleeping in the town square was hospitality someone taking them in. Now, the virtual Jewish library's article on hospitality begins with these words. In ancient Israel, 
Hospitality was not merely a question of good manners, but a moral institution which grew out of the harsh desert and nomadic existence led by the people of Israel. The biblical customs of welcoming the weary traveler and of receiving the stranger in one's midst was the matrix out of which hospitality and all its tributary aspects developed into a highly esteemed virtue in Jewish tradition. Hospitality was a highly esteemed virtue. In fulfillment of Jesus' commission here, this one, and we just read about, but also his great commission, many will choose to follow him and they would travel extensively. And they still do, even today. Some by choice, some by convenience, many by necessity. I mean, the all too common reality of being outcast from one's family, being hunted by the authorities, this necessitated hospitality. You had to have some place to go when you were driven out. And hospitality became a kingdom survival tactic. If you wanted to be in the kingdom, hospitality was the way you survived. But it was also an act of courage. You see, to, as time went on, opposition against Christianity only grew. And there came a time when the prevailing government, the Roman Empire, was sanctioning persecution against believers, capturing them, um, imprisoning them, putting them in the Colosseum to be marred and mauled by lions. In this setting, to visit a brother or sister locked in prison, to bring them food and water or medical aid, it took courage. It took courage to, to show in a public display that you were allied with Jesus, that you were on Jesus's team because maybe you ended up in prison. These were true acts of spiritual heroism. And though no earthly accolades would be given, it was right that Jesus should reward those who did it. Now Jesus further instructs his disciples that anyone who welcomes them, his sent ones, would be welcoming him, God's sent one, and therefore welcoming God. Jesus is sending the 12 out. And he's sending them out strategically. He's sending them to the towns and the villages that he himself wants to visit, but has not visited yet. They become his heralds. They're giving the people a taste of the coming kingdom. The people, the crowds who would gather, you know, just imagine the scene, right? The disciples show up in your town and they stand up in the town square and they start preaching, the kingdom is coming, the kingdom is hand, the kingdom of God is like this. A crowd gathers. A sick person comes by and they heal them. Word spreads. The crowd grows. Right? Another sick person healed. Someone brings their um, you know, demon-possessed child or, and the demon is cast out. Wonders and miracles. And at the end of a long day, everyone disperses and the disciples are left alone. Someone, someone who saw or witnessed the kingdom, someone who tasted God coming near would say, come to my home. Like you are a man of God. Let, let, me, let me give you some refreshment. It's only fitting that those who are the most stirred, the most interested, the most blessed by this proclamation of the kingdom should be the ones who then welcome the disciples and maybe develop relationship, friendship. Once these relationships have been established, 
Then the disciples could move on to the next town. But when they returned, who would be, and I should say returned with the master, with Jesus, who would be the first to show up? Likely those who spent the time with the disciples, right? Bring the disciples in, breaking bread with them. What does Jesus tell them? If you find a house that's worthy, let your peace rest on that house. Blessing comes to the house because of its hospitality. These are like the early uh, adopter perks, right? The, the, the angel investors who have invested in Christ's ministry and then see the windfall, not a financial windfall, but a spiritual benefit coming back to them. Now, in this way, verse 40 sets this precedent. We see hospitality not just a, a cultural norm, right? not just a good deed to mimic, but, but a glimpse into a, the development of a grassroots, relationally driven network that becomes the center of Jesus' expanding earthly ministry. The simple act of receiving those whom Jesus had sent became the foundational activity of the early church. And we see that in Acts 2. What did they do? They gathered together, breaking bread in their homes. And well, it began here with Jesus sending his disciples out. So for me, as a modern person, it seems really presumptuous to assume you show up in some town and someone's going to take you in, right? But for them, it was critical. In fact, it was likely the secret to Jesus' success. So then we come to verse 41. Verse 41 says, whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. The Old Testament contains a number of commands, encouragements for God's people to practice hospitality. In fact, God himself, when he says this, he says, remember the sojourner. Why? Because you were sojourners in Egypt. And he couches it in their experience, their collective and communal experience as slaves in Egypt. Not only that, but any good student of the Torah would know and be able to cite for you specific examples of radical hospitality in the Old Testament and how God responded. So Abraham entertains angels in his home. Rebecca serves and gives refreshment to the camels of Isaac's servant. And this is how Rebecca becomes Isaac's wife, how Rebecca becomes included in the family of promise. Now, famous among all these examples would be the account of the Shunammite woman in 2 Kings chapter 4. She not only provided the prophet Elisha with refreshment, but she gave him a place to stay. So 2 Kings 4, 8 to 10, reads this way. One day, Elisha went to Shunem, and a well-to-do woman was there who urged him to stay for a meal. So whenever he came by, he stopped there to eat. She said to her husband, I know that this man who often comes our way is a holy man of God. Let's make a small room on the roof and put in it a bed and a table, a chair and a lamp for him. Then he can stay there whenever he comes to us. Now, the travel savvy among us will recognize that 2 Kings 4 has just described the Airbnb phenomenon <laughs> 3,000 years in advance, right? Amenities, bed, lamp, chair, okay? Um, the Shunammite woman's little DIY project produces this furnished guest house so that whenever the Eli Elisha the prophet was headed that way, he could, you know, log into the app and reserve the one-bedroom bungalow, 
and have a place to stay. Now, she's not just, you know, capitalizing on living next to the highway or flexing her side hustle skills here. This is a woman who is spiritually sensitive, financially generous, and has spiritual fervor. Like she recognizes the grace of God in Elisha's ministry. She wants to bless the man of God and bless God. She wants to be a part of the work that God is doing. And she finds a way to do that. Let's face it, being a prophet was a high stakes endeavor. Most of the Old Testament prophets experience was very much like what David described a couple of weeks ago, opposition from social, military, and political forces. They were um, you know, uh, cast out by their families, they were imprisoned, they were beaten, some were even killed. And so to give this grace, this blessing to Elisha would have been, well, I'm sure, welcomed. Now, interestingly, if you read the rest of the story, Elisha is sitting on the couch, this comfy couch that she's provided for him, and she think, he thinks to himself, what could we do for this woman? He's, he asks his, his, his uh, servant, Gehazi, what, what should we do for her? And so it goes on that Elisha shares with her, like, God, God is going to bless you. Um, at the time that she met Elisha, she was childless. In that culture, um, childlessness was often seen as uh, an embarrassment, maybe evidence that God was punishing you, you had done something wrong. Why wouldn't God bless you with, with children? Um, and so despite the fact that she was well-to-do, we might think that she would have an honored position in her culture, most likely she was ostracized. She was the subject of whispers and backdoor conversations. Um, and so God blesses her through Elisha. He gives this prophetic word. She has this son. The son grows, but in his youth, he tragically falls ill and he dies. And his text tells us that she places him on the couch, Elisha's couch. So then she goes immediately to find Elisha. She tells him the story and he comes. And what does Elisha do? Well, he does what any of us would do, right? He lays on the child and breathes into his mouth and raises him from the dead. No, he does what only God can do. The prophet brings the prophet's reward. Her relationship to Elisha gives her access to God and his power and his resurrection. And she sees the blessing. Now, before you all go out and put an addition on your home, with a sign that says, Prophet's Welcome. <laughs> I don't want to make this seem like it's uh, formulaic, right? This isn't Jesus' advice on how to manipulate the cosmic gumball machine. I want a red gumball, not a blue gumball. Like, you know, this is really about God, about God's character, about the fact that God is faithful to bless. Blessing the faithful is an immutable trait of God's perfect character. These stories are meant to give us confidence that God sees what we do. Even a cup of cold water given to one of these, my disciple, the smallest act of kindness and generosity. Jesus himself tells us, my father who is in heaven, who sees in secret will reward in secret. 
And so whatever you do to bless God's people, God will see it and God will reward. God will remember. Hebrews 11 tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So what are our takeaways? What what would it look like for us to live our faith in action? First, it's Palm Sunday, uh, as David mentioned. Um, I want to read to you from Matthew's account of that sort of we call triumphal entry of Jesus entering Jerusalem. Matthew writes this, the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees that would be the palm branches and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Now, look at this. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered. The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So Palm Sunday, we commemorate Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem, the last week of his life, preparing for his greatest act to go to the cross. On this day, the eager crowds touted Jesus as a prophet. Some received him as a king, son of David. That's a kingly title. They're expecting him to come in and do something great, something amazing, overthrow the Romans, whatever. But Hebrews, the letter written to the Hebrews, refutes this and takes it up a notch. Here's what it says. In the past, God spoke to us through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Hebrews tells us that something greater than a prophet has come. And if the blessing for receiving a prophet is great, how much greater must the blessing be for receiving God's son? The crowds received Jesus as a prophet, and rightly so, for he had the words of life. But when we receive Jesus as God's son, we receive something greater Have you received Jesus? Have you received him as a prophet? Have you received him as God's son? As the heir of all things, as the one through whom God made the universe? You see, a prophet can bring a great message. A prophet can work a miracle. But only the son can bring adoption. Only the son can make you a part of God's family. The question today is, are we mingling at the edges of the crowd, looking over shoulders, peeking in, asking, who is this? Interested and intrigued? 
Or have we put in our lot with God and God's people? Have we become sons and daughters? The kingdom of God is near. God has come near through his son. Have you received him? Have you drawn near? Have you become known? Have you made your story or given up your story for God's story? You see, receiving Jesus in this light brings us direct access to God. He who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. If you have never done that, I invite you to do it today, to draw near, not to hang out at the fringes, but to come to the center. Second, how is your hospitality game? In-home ministry has been at the center of God's strategy to reach the nations from the beginning. The, an act of hosting God's people may not seem like a revolutionary declaration of allegiance to Jesus, like it may have been in the first century, but that doesn't make it trivial. If you live in such a way that your home is a beacon of God's grace in a spiritually dark place, a refreshing oasis of mercy, an escape from the cancel, cancel culture, then you are advancing God's kingdom and you're doing it in your own neighborhood. That's one reason we place so much emphasis on community groups. Like, I love it when we welcome new members and we have the videos and uh, people tell their story. And the most common, the most uh, highly, or most often cited reason that people have chosen Jubilee is because they've been won over by authentic community. Community groups are our attempt to foster the same openness, the same vulnerability and connection and life change that marked Jesus' ministry, but to do it here and today in modern times and in modern places. Opening our homes to bless and receive God's people is an act of receiving the Son and of receiving the Father. You know, how we treat the church says a lot about what we think of Jesus. In this text, I already mentioned, you know, Jesus elevates the disciples. They used to be learners. Now they're sent ones. If you read the letters written by these same men later on, you see that the church uh, or that, that believers and followers of Jesus have even more elevated status in God's kingdom. Peter writes that we're a holy priesthood. Paul writes that we will rule and reign with Christ in his heavenly kingdom. John writes that we are the bride of Christ. You know, if I met someone and I realized that they might be able to help me gain access to the king, someone who carried the same authority as the king, oh, and they happen to be the king's fiance, I might think twice about how I interact with her. So the question is, how is your relationship with Jesus' future bride? Have you invited her into your home? Have you prepared a meal for her? Are you on a first name basis? Have you considered how to bless her recently? These acts of hospitality are not just for entertaining friends, but entertaining future rulers, who will, people who will 
reign with Christ, Christ's bride, the church. Third, God dwells among his people, and that is their greatest reward. In Exodus 33, Moses is <laughs> praying to God, probably ar maybe arguing with God, reasoning with God, however you want to think of it. And it says this, Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Moses knew that the distinguishing mark of God's people was God's presence. It is in our mutual pursuit together of God that God's presence is most often manifested among us. And there's no greater reward for the people of God than to be in the presence of God. Jesus himself gives us a wonderful promise. He says that where two or more of you are gathered, I will be with you. It only takes two. Two people, and Jesus promises his presence. Now here at Jubilee, we hold the values of God's word and God's spirit in equally high esteem. Right? We want to be submitted to the authority of the scripture. We want to be molded and shaped by it. But we also long to enjoy the presence of God, and that is mediated by his spirit. The spirit, the spirit testifies with us that we are the children of God, and the spirit gives gifts to the church. And those gifts aren't just things or abilities, they're people. It says in Ephesians 4 that God gives to the church prophets, evangelists, teachers, preachers. I mean, this is God's work. The Spirit comes among us and makes our faith experiential, not just intellectual. So we throw in our lot with God and with his people, and we can expect to see God at work among us. And we can expect to benefit from God's presence among us. And ultimately, that's the prophet's reward, access to God's presence through inclusion in God's people. Now, members of Jubilee, we have witnessed an outpouring of God's power and presence together. When we gather, weekly prayer, quarterly prayer, uh, impromptu times of prayer, community groups, God draws near. And I'm so thankful to be a part of a church that where we put our foot on the pedal and we are chasing after, seeking what God has for us a vibrant experience of God's reality. I mean, this morning, actually, I was feeling ill. You can hear it in my voice. I'm still getting over this cold. And Brenda uh, came, uh, McCutcheon uh, came and gave me an encouraging word. She said, I just felt like the Lord had a word for you, that his strength will be with you today. And it is by his strength that I'm preaching to you. Because yesterday, I had 101 fever. I was laying on a couch all day. But I'm, but, but I'm so thankful that we are in a community where that is happening regularly. It's a blessing to be here. It's interesting, Moses in Numbers 11 says, would, not, uh, would that all of God's people were prophets? Prophetically calling out what we see in Joel. In the book of Joel, it says that the spirit would be poured out in those last days and that everyone would prophesy. Look to your right. Look to your left. This room is full of prophets. Amen? Would that all God's people were prophets. That is a New Testament promise. And we are pressing in. We want more of the prophetic, more healings, greater faith. We want to see God among us. And that's what we're praying for. Every time we gather, we gather with expectancy. If you receive one of these, 
you receive a prophet. If you receive one of these, you receive a righteous person. If you receive one of these, you receive Jesus himself. Let's pray. The band can come up. Father, we thank you so much for the New Testament blessing and promise that all your people would be prophets. Lord God, we desire it more. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would move among us. We want to foster this through hospitality and through service. We want to be your people. We want to experience your presence. And so we ask that you would do it, Lord God, and you would do it in a greater measure so that the world would know that you are pleased with us because you delight to be with your people.